Well, good afternoon, church. Thank you for gathering with us here today. We get to uh, come once again to open God's Word and uh, really be a wonderful time for us uh, because it's dealing with a topic which could spur us on to greater witness unto the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were with us last week, you know that we are in Acts chapter 21, specifically in verse 1 to verse 16, which is dealing with a theme which uh, is necessary for all of us to have as we are called to live our lives to the glory of our Lord. It is the theme of conviction. Uh, that is, living out the convictions that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to us by the Spirit of God in order that our lives could be uh, worthy of His name and also lead many to know who He is. Uh, there are these convictions that Paul is living by which really serve for us as an example that we ourselves can follow in order that we would be able to live out the convictions which the Lord Jesus Christ gives to us. Our convictions are often not the same. They're generally relegated to the area of Christian ministry or always relegated to the area of Christian ministry, but their application is much different. Nevertheless, what we see here from what the Apostle Paul is doing in Acts chapter 21, again verse 1 to verse 16, is he is living by his convictions. And he demonstrates to us just some basic uh, truths about one who is convicted uh, in the area of Christian ministry, and they are going to see that conviction through to the end. And so as we left off last week at verse 6, we're going to pick it up in verse 7, and we'll read to the close of this uh, passage here in verse 16, again, to be able to not only establish what our convictions ought to be, but also to look at the ways in which we are called to live them out, thereby that we would be able to glorify the name of our Lord uh, as we do so. So again, Acts chapter 21, verse 7 to verse 16, and it says, When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus." And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. All these days we got re after these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that we get to gather here together as your church to continue to be uh, edified by your word as we seek to apply it to our lives, uh, not in our own strength ultimately, but through the strength and the power of your spirit, Lord. Lord, we ask that as we uh, come to this passage here, we would be moved uh, by your spirit to be able to live lives, which are lives that are uh, guided by our convictions, Lord, not our personal preferences, but our convictions and what it is that you are calling for us to do. Lord, that we would do this, again, not for just the purpose of our own uh, self-edification uh, or self-glory or, or self-progress, but rather that we would be able to be bold witnesses unto your Son, Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. We ask these things in His or something in which they wish to accomplish. Everyone. There is no one who is not living by their convictions. And often, a way in which people seek to live out, by, live out their convictions is through coming up with some slogans which motivate them to do that. One such example is as I was playing football in high school at the East Kentwood High School uh, football team, we had the slogan called buy in or sell out. We had it plastered all over our shirts. It was on our uh, uh, stickers. It was on magnets. It was everywhere. The coaches had this, this slogan that we would follow, that we would be bought in or we would sell out. Now, when I was there, I didn't really know what it meant. In fact, our coaches never went into detail what they meant by it. It was just kind of a cool slogan to say, and people would ask us what it meant. My dad, I think, asked me, I said, I have no idea what this means. But what they were attempting to do in giving us this statement, this buy-in or sell-out statement, was that they were seeking us to be convicted to, to live and to play and to do all things in order that our football team would excel when it came time to the season, when we would be able to play against other teams, that we would buy into the program, we would buy into the team aspect. We would buy into the fact that we were all team, teammates who were seeking to beat the other team. 
We would buy into the program of the uh, playbook. We would buy into the position that the coach had put us in. We would buy into the practices. We would buy into the two-a-days. We would just be bought into everything that the coaches were leading us in. This was in order that we would be able to be a team that is living by the same convictions. They would say, if you are not ready to buy in to what we are called to do here as a team, you can sell out. You can take your stake in whatever it is that you have here on this football team, and there's the door. You either are bought into what we are doing, or you are sold out and you need to go and do something else. They were looking for those who were completely motivated to be a team player, a, a team which was motivated by its convictions to be the best team that it could be, not self-personal uh, goals, not you know becoming the best so that I can get a college scholarship, rather that we would be a team which is sold out uh, for the purpose of becoming the best team that we could be. Now, we didn't really live by our convictions because we went two and seven, but nonetheless, this was a team that was instructed by its coaches to be bought in or sold out, and this is a way in which we can learn what it means to live by one's convictions, what it means to truthfully live by one's convictions. You see, everyone lives by their convictions, and you can often categorize how people live out their convictions in a few different ways. There are those who have these convictions that they say that they have but are often insincere in their statements. Now, this may not be intentional. They may not be intentionally saying, I'm going to do this or that uh, with not having the intention to do it, but showing, showing their true colors, they don't actually do it, and you see that their, uh, their conviction was insincere. A uh, missionary that I mentioned last week who was wanting to be a martyr for the Lord. Remember, I shared this example. He says, I want to be a martyr. I want to be a martyr. This was his conviction. I want to go out, share the gospel, and whatever might come, I am going to share the gospel. This was his conviction, and so he was sent out. But then he was put on trial, and, and they were going to kill him. And he said, I don't want to be a martyr. And he renounced his faith, and he went back into the old place where he was, and he you know, really was wagging his tail. He was spoke before he was certain that that was actually a conviction in which he was going to live out. Still also are those, you would say, that would have a partial conviction. That is, they are committed up to a point. I will do this if, or, or I'll do this tomorrow, or you know, come back to me next week and, and I'll get to doing this. It's not a true conviction. One who is convicted is seeing too that they would be going about and doing that conviction, not waiting for it, but rather a total commitment to, bring, to bringing it about. We learned John Mark last week, again, using another example. Uh, Acts chapter 13, John Mark went on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. And they were going throughout these towns and they were planting churches. Well, John Mark, along with Paul and also Barnabas, they are leaving the island of Cyprus and they enter into the region of southern Galatia. And southern Galatia, they had these, the Taurus mountain range that you had to go through. And there were robbers there. Uh, there was a lot of sickness that would happen because it was a very treacherous travel and cold weather, cold nights. And so your body would get uh, aches and pains and you get sickness. John Mark saw those Taurus mountains and he said, guys, I don't think I'm going to continue on this, this mission with you anymore. This was a, a partial conviction. It was a conviction up to a point. And that point was, John said, I'm going to sell out here. I am not willing to be facing robberies or also being sick for sharing the gospel with you guys. I'm not going to continue in this. But still, finally, you have one other conviction that individuals will often live by, and that is through inconsistency. They have these inconsistent convictions, which means one day they are on fire for it. I've got to do this. I'm going to get this done. And the next day, they're not doing anything with their lives. They are constantly wavering between their convictions, never accomplishing anything, and never doing anything truly of lasting value because if they're inconsistent in them, they may do it for a little bit, and then a couple weeks from now, they're going to take up another conviction, and nothing ever gets done in their lives. You see, what we have seen thus far from Paul is this is that as we are seeking to live out the Christian convictions that we have been given through the inspiring work of the Spirit of God, is our convictions are to be lived out with a devotedness to them. We are to devote ourselves to the convictions, to the things in which the Spirit of God is calling for us to live out. That we would be committed, not up to a point, but committed to see it through to the end, knowing that doing so brings glory to God and honor to His name. And also that there is not this commitment that comes up to a point which says, you know, someone might sway me from my conviction or from my firm standing in this. No, there is just this, 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 this focusness, this steadfastness that they are going to do what the Lord Jesus Christ is calling them to do. This was Paul. This was Paul. He was motivated to live out his convictions to the glory of God. And as we know from his life, he accomplished many, many, many great things. A point which must be made here is that many of us as Christians are not living out the Christian convictions that we have been given by the Lord in this way. 
If it were the case that we were living out by these Christian convictions, we would see that there would be probably much more blessing in the church where many individuals would be knowing about the Lord Jesus Christ. But we would also note that there would be more, more persecution because we know that whenever God's church lives out to the glory of His name very uh, practically in the world, they, they get persecuted. It always happens. The church gets planted. The church begins to live out its witness. The church gets persecuted. And they continue in their witness. It is evident to me that there is a, a, a lot of individuals, myself included at times, who are failing to live out their Christian convictions. And this is sad because what we see happening in our world is we have a world which is coming under the constraining influence of the God of this world, that is Satan himself, and are led to live out their sinful, their sinful convictions in a way in which often puts the Christian church to shame. There is many individuals who are, who are the loudest voices who are speaking the most demonic truths, these, these demonic lies that these individuals are saying, these sinful lies, and yet so often there is no Christian there to stand up for the truth and to call out that lie or to call out that falsehood. Rather, they just are standing, you know, don't want to get involved with any of those issues that are faced there. You see, we must live by our convictions no matter the cost. There's one such example of an individual in the world who lives out their Christian conviction, one who, an individual who I used to uh, look up to in a certain way, not because he was demonic, but rather because he was a weightlifter. His name was Arnold Schwarzenegger. You probably know who he was. He was our governor for some time. This was a man who lived out his convictions, and he often puts Christians to shame in how he lives out his convictions. Now, as I go to share this, I'm not commending him in this, but I'm rather seeking to make a point that Paul himself makes a point of in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Arnold Schwarzenegger was uh, Mr. Olympia. He was the greatest bodybuilder ever to live. He set out with a purpose. He was going to be the best bodybuilder that you ever saw. And he was. He was the best bodybuilder ever. You still look at individuals even to this day. Arnold ranks among the best of the best as a bodybuilder. You say, why was this the case? Was it his genetics? Not really. He wasn't anything special before he got into it. Was it because he had some special sauce? No, all of them were juicing. They all had steroids. They all used the same steroids. You know, what was the reason for Arnold Schwarzenegger's ability to excel, uh, to become the, the, greatest, uh, the greatest Mr. Olympian of all time? Well, it was this. He had a steadfast conviction that he was going to be the best, that he was going to do anything, absolutely anything, to get that thing which he was seeking after. One such example of this is that during his 1974 Mr. Olympia campaign, he was training, and it was very, very close to the time in which they were going to uh, begin their pose-offs, where they were going to stand before each other. It was him and Lou Ferrigno and another one of his friends. And these were individuals who all were training. Arnold got a call from his mother, and his mother said, you know, Arnold, your, your dad passed away today. And he says, you know, okay, that's, thank you for letting me know, but I, I can't be bothered with this right now. I'm training for the Mr. Olympia. His mom's trying to get him to go back to Germany so that he can bury his father. And, and Arnold says, why are you bothering me with this? I need to win the Mr. Olympia competition. And so he didn't go to his own father's funeral. He said, I will not be bothered with this at this point. It's too close to my competition. I am going to win this title. And that he did. Now, again, don't mistake me. I'm not commending Arnold in this. What I am saying, though, is that Arnold was so committed to win this prize, the Mr. Olympia Prize, which is perishing, which fades away, and which countless other individuals have won since he himself last won his Mr. Olympia. I think it was in 1975. Countless individuals have won this prize. And yet Arnold was willing to dedicate everything, even forsaking going and burying his own father who raised him for the purpose of winning this title. How much more should we be convicted to live out our own Christian convictions knowing that the prize we receive is not a perishable one, but rather an eternal, an eternal one which has eternal fruits along with it. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25 to 27 says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. You see, these athletes or these individuals who are living out their convictions, they are living out their convictions for things which perish and ultimately things which are sinful because they replace them, they replace these things with God who alone is worthy of all honor and praise. But as we live out our spirit-led convictions, we can know that the fruit of them will be eternal. And so we are to do this with boldness, with courageousness, with total devotion and dedication, ultimately not to the conviction itself, but rather to the one who has given us this conviction, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
When Christ gives us a conviction, when Christ calls us to do something for His namesake, He is expecting total commitment. Not a wavering commitment, not an intermittent equipment, uh, uh, conviction. He's not saying, you know, well, you can do this tomorrow or you can do this the next day. No, Christ expects a total commitment to the task in which He is calling for us to live by. You know, we might think it's strange hearing Arnold's reaction to his father's passing where Arnold said, I'm not going to go back there to bury my father, mother. You know, don't don't bother me with this. But this resembles the very words of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, does it not? In Luke chapter 9, verse 59 to verse 62, it says, To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We must have a total obedience to the commitments that the Lord Jesus Christ is calling for us to live out because the Lord Jesus Christ expects that to be such. He expects that as we are given these spirit-filled convictions that we would live them to the glory of his name. As I mentioned last week, I don't think that we have a problem in in often knowing what the Lord's calling for us to do. We can generalize what the Lord calls us to do through the worship of His name, through the fellowship of His saints, and through the evangelization of the lost. I think we realize where our convictions ought to lie. But where we fail often is having the boldness to be able to live them out. Having the courageousness to live them out. Having the assurance to, to go forward in these things knowing that the Lord is the one who is going to supply us with the ability to accomplish what He is setting out for us to do. You know, often we think about, you know, how am I going to do this? You know, the Lord's given me this conviction and I don't have anything going for me. I don't know how to do this. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to be doing here in this. We, we often leave ourselves on the sideline when the Lord calls us to do something because we think that we are not going to be able to accomplish it. And that is true. We will not accomplish it in our own strength. But rather, if we place our faith in the Lord who is calling for us to accomplish these things for His purposes, He will give us the ability to do so. This is what faith is. Faith is, as Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, it is the assurance of things hoped for and it is the conviction of things not yet seen. And I'm not putting the uh, redemptive category to faith here. This is not our justifi- justifiable faith, but rather this is a faith which says the Lord has called me to do this and I am going to do this because the Lord is going to give me the strength to be able to live these things out. The Lord has called me to this. The Lord is calling me to live out these truths in order that I would accomplish purposes for His name's sake. And as He is called, He is going to provide for me to be able to see these things to completion. Now Paul, as we have seen, was one who lived by faith. Paul is an individual who was going about his life knowing that it was not his own strength that he was operating in. Rather, it was the strength of the Lord. Paul would say, I would rather be in my weakness because I know that in my weakness then I am made strong because that is when the Lord's grace is most evident in my life. You see, Paul is one who lived by faith. And here is just another example of Paul in Acts chapter 21 with him taking up the mantle of faith taking up the Christian conviction that the Lord Jesus Christ had given to him and to go to Jerusalem. To go to Jerusalem. You say, why is Paul going to Jerusalem? Well, again, Paul's going to Jerusalem because he has a spiritual conviction. And it is the conviction that as he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to bring money to the Jerusalem saints that he has collected from the Gentile churches all throughout uh, Asia Minor, the Galatian world, and also in Europe. He's going to these places. He's asking them for resources that he could give these monies to the Jerusalem church because they themselves were in extreme poverty. They were poor, destitute. They had nothing really going for them. Not only were they in ground zero for where the persecution was as terms, as terms of Christianity was faced with, but also there was a famine which had struck and they were poor and destitute not being able to receive the same help that other individuals would be able to receive from the temple worship places because they had restricted themselves from that because they no longer were following after the old Judaistic system but rather they were living their lives under the new covenant the new covenant which was worship worshiping God through his son the Lord Jesus Christ and so Paul has this conviction that if he takes up this money from the, uh, from the Gentile churches, he's going to go and bring it to the Jerusalem saints that this is going to be able to enrich the body of Christ who is there. And it's not just in the practical sense, but also it's in the theological sense, which Paul is seeking to unite the church in a greater way than they had been before. 
as you know, the Gentiles and the Jews didn't really get along. There was this dividing wall of hostility between them. There was this idea that, well, we're better than you, or, or you're less than us, or, or we're the chosen people and you're not the chosen people, or, or look at you doing all these dietary restrictions, and you know, we can just live in freedom. There was just these, these separations between these two individuals who had been united to God through Jesus Christ by the one Spirit. And so Paul, seeking to bring their position into practice, says, I'm going to take up this offering and I'm going to bring it to the Jerusalem church from all of these Gentile churches. Well, there was a problem with this in that, uh, but I guess not really a problem, but there was this warning that Paul often received when he made people aware of this intention to take the money to Jerusalem. And this intention that he made clear to them was that I'm going to bring it there no matter what. And they said, well, we want to warn you about this. And they often did this through prophetic uh, utterance through the Spirit of God where they said, when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to be imprisoned and you are going to be beaten. And often people would try to sway him from his conviction and they would say, Paul, don't go. Don't go, Paul. We need you here. We don't need you to be in jail. We don't want you to get beat. And so just stay here. Don't go any further. What we learned last week from Paul in this is that not only are we to be determined in our convictions because, you know, you need to know what you're doing in order to do something, but also we must be so determined in our convictions because there are going to be individuals who seek to sway us from following through with him, to sway us from living out our convictions to the fullest extent. And not necessarily because they're trying to restrict us from doing God's will, but rather in their love and their concern for us, they're going to try to move us from that conviction which is godly, and therefore they're they're, they're, they're trying to bring us from a position where we need to be in simply because they care for us, when the reality is, is that if the Lord is calling us to do this, we must go forward. We must go forward no matter the cost. This brings us to the point in which is made here in verse 7 to verse 14 of our passage here as we think about what it means to live out our spirit-led convictions. As we think about what it means to be an individual who is walking by their convictions, who is not swayed from their convictions, what is shown to us from verse 7 to verse 14 is that an individual who is living by their spirit-filled convictions will see them through no matter the cost. There is no price too high. There is no point in which they're going to sell out. Rather, they are bought in. There is no way they're going to sell out. They will pay any price to follow through with what the Lord Jesus Christ is calling for them to do. And as we'll see, the cost can be quite high. And that is why many times, many times for us as believers, we fail to live out our convictions because we are unwilling to pay the cost that often is associated with living out what the Lord is calling for us to do. And so this first point, this is where we're going to spend a lot of time today. Verse 7 to verse 14 again is that the individual who is living by their spirit-filled convictions will see them through no matter the cost. Verse 7 says, When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus." And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Now there is much to this, much, much wonderful truth to this. But as we, as we see it just in the initial setting out in verse 7, Paul and his companions have now left the believers at Tyre and are now heading down to the Venetian coast as they continue on their journey to Jerusalem. Getting to, uh, from Tyre, they stop off at Ptolemaeus for a day. This is about a 30-mile journey, and so they're going down the coastline. Well, they then make their way another 30 miles south as they make it into a town called Caesarea. This is the town we've seen quite often in Acts. You know, Caesarea was where Philip the Evangelist settled. We saw that in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 10, this is where the first Gentile conversion happened in the uh, family of Cornelius and his household. Caesarea has played a dominant point. And so Paul and his party stop off here. And as Luke tells us, they stop off here for a while 
because Paul's goal is to make it to Jerusalem by Pentecost, which today actually is Pentecost here uh, in, in our day. But so Paul is trying to make it to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost, by the Feast of Pentecost, so that he can deliver the money to the Jerusalem saints there while they are feasting and celebrating. It would be a wonderful time for them to be united together as the body of Christ. And so he's trying to make it there, but he's got some extra time. And so they stop off in Caesarea for a while, and they begin to fellowship with the body of Christ there, as they always did. Whenever they made it to a new town, they didn't look out, uh, check out the sites. They didn't want to go and do a little tourism. Rather, they said, where's the church? We're going to fellowship with our brothers and sisters here in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as they get there, they get to Caesarea. They stay at a guy named Philip's house. Now, Philip, if you're unfamiliar with who Philip is, a little backstory about him. Luke gives it to us here in verse, uh, uh, verse 8. He says, we enter the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Philip, if you remember back in Acts chapter 6, was an individual who was tremendously important to the spiritual health of the church. The Hellenist widows were saying that the uh, Hebrew widows were getting a little bit of extra care. This was a predominantly Jewish church, and so the Hellenists, these were Greek-speaking Jews or, or Greek Jews, they're saying the, the, the Hebrew widows are getting a lot more care than we are here. What's going on with this? There's favoritism going on here. It's a, it's a, it's a heavy accusation to levy against anyone, and so the apostles say, listen, the church needs to choose from among themselves seven men full of the Spirit in order that they can wait tables. We, as the, the apostles, the leaders of the church, we're going to preach God's Word and commit ourselves to prayer. Well, Philip was one of the seven that was chosen there. And Philip got his ministry going on there, and he was serving the widows there for a time. But then, in Acts chapter 8, at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, the Apostle Paul, prior to him becoming a believer in the Lord, began persecuting the church terribly. He was killing Christians. He was arresting Christians. And so Philip had to get out of there, probably because at this point his daughters were quite young and he wanted to keep his family safe. And so Philip leaves Jerusalem. He's no longer caring for the widows there. And he begins this evangelistic ministry, which Acts chapter 8 really covers quite in depth. Philip finds himself going into Samaria and he's preaching the gospel there to individuals. He sees many converts coming to the faith. Then Philip is uh, there and he's in Samaria. He's got a great ministry going and the Spirit says, hey, I need you to go over to the road here, the desert road at Gaza, because there's someone there for you. He goes there. He finds the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53 and he says, I don't know what this means. And Philip says, well, hey, let me tell you what it means. And so he goes and shares the gospel with him. Well, in Acts chapter 8, verse 40, the last we hear about Philip was, but Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all towns until he came to Caesarea. And so we're reacquainted with Philip some 25 years later, and he has settled down with his family in Caesarea. It was a great town to do that. It was the uh, military town. It would have been very safe for them, a great place to raise a family, and also a great place to share the gospel with individuals, especially given that uh, the Roman centurion Cornelius found himself a believer in the Lord, and so there was a lot of works of ministry going on there. We get another example of what uh, Paul finds as he gets to Caesarea here before we get to the point of paying any price for our convictions. It's his statement that Philip himself had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So Paul's there, and he's uh, hanging out with Philip, and they're chatting and talking about the Word of God. And, and Luke says, and then we met also his four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And this verse is somewhat confusing as to why Luke includes it here. But as we know, God doesn't use any filler in his text. There's a reason for this verse to be here. And one such reason that I think is probably why this verse is here for us uh, as we would be able to understand the Scriptures in an even greater way is because these four women, these four unmarried daughters who were prophesying were individuals who were tremendously important to recite the history of the early church. These were women who Paul and Luke met as they were in Caesarea and, and actually knew them even later because Paul spends about two and a half years in Caesarea in prison. They met with these women, and these women were tremendously important to giving the early stages of the history of the church. Probably their dad, Philip, gave them stories about what happened and told them about the persecutions, told them about the day of Pentecost, maybe. He told them about these things. And the reason we know this is because... Eusebius, he's an early church historian, says that these women actually proved to be valuable resources towards giving information on the early history of the church. And Luke himself may have gotten information from them, and that's probably why he includes them here. But nevertheless, we move past that, and we get to the point which is important for us today, here and now. 
This point which says that as we are living out our spirit-filled convictions, we are going to do so with paying any price. Well, by paying any price, nothing will sway us. Nothing is going to be more valuable to us. We're never going to cash out and say, you know, I think I've served up to the right point. I'm not going to serve any longer. I've gotten all that I can out of this. I'm going to sell out here at this point. No, we will pay any price to see our convictions through to the end. It's in verse 10 here where we see that there is an individual named Agabus who came down from Judea. He was a prophet. We learned about Agabus back in Acts chapter 11. He prophesied earlier about the famine that would come to the Jerusalem church. And just so happens, the Spirit of God moves him to give another prophetic word about what's going to happen to Paul as he finds himself returning to Jerusalem. Information necessarily. Paul knew that as he got to Jerusalem, he was going to be imprisoned and beaten when he got there. What he didn't know is he didn't know exactly how it was going to happen. And so while Agabus doesn't really give any new information, he gives a little bit more understanding as to what this is going to look like. In Acts chapter 20, verse 22 to 23, it says, Paul says, this is his prior knowledge before Agabus comes. He says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul didn't know what was going to happen to him in this point. This was back in Ephesus. He's talking to the Ephesian elders. Actually, in Miletus, talking to the Ephesian elders. He didn't know what was going to happen. But as he gets closer to the point of making it into Jerusalem, the Spirit leads Agabus to come down from Judea, even though Judea was actually south of where they were in Caesarea. He came down from Judea, and Judea was sort of in a mountainous area, so they always say you go come down from Judea to go wherever else you were planning on going. He comes down from Judea, he goes up to Caesarea, and he says, Paul, I've got a word from the Lord Jesus Christ for you. The Spirit has told me this is what is going to happen to you. You are going to be bound. It says in verse 11, in coming to us, he took Paul's belt, you know, using a big object illustration, right? Takes Paul's belt off. It's not a small belt. This would have been a large belt, and so he would have been able to accomplish what he's seeking to do. He says, this is what's going to happen to you when you get to Jerusalem. The Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus is here, and he's being really dramatic with this. Often the prophets were often led to dramatize what's going to happen. You go to uh, the Old Testament, and you see Isaiah. One time Isaiah was to show how utterly desolate the people of God were, and so he was to walk around naked to show the nakedness of Israel. Another time Ezekiel found himself having to show the utter desolation of Israel, and so he had to lay on his side for almost nearly a year's time and then flip over and do the same thing. They often did these very dramatic object illustrations to drive the point home as to what was going to happen so that people would get the point. And so Agabus, he comes there and he ties himself up, you know, probably ties his legs first and then he ties his hands and he's looking at Paul and he's looking at the people and he says, this is what Paul's going to, this is going to happen to Paul here. You see how I'm bound? You see how, how, how I'm tied up here, how I cannot move, how I am restricted, how I can be dragged and brought wherever it is you want to bring me? This is going to be the case of Paul. Paul is going to be arrested and he is going to be delivered up by the Jews into the hands of the Romans. And if you read further on, this is exactly what will happen to him. The prophecy of Agabus is correct. We'll see it more as we get to the end part of Acts chapter 21, but the prophecy was true. Now immediately, the reaction from the believers there is something in which we should expect to happen. If, if someone came here and they were speaking truth and they said, listen, there's going to be someone that comes in here and he's going to do some very, very bad stuff to you. The immediate response is going to be, uh, I think we might want to go. We might not want to stay here much longer. This is what happens to Paul here in verse, uh, verse 12. Uh, it says, when we heard this, this is all of the believers who are with him, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. This seems like a wise thing to do, you know. The Spirit said to Paul on numerous occasions, if you go, you're going to get beaten, you're going to get imprisoned. You know, why would anyone in their right mind go through with that? Well, the reason that they would do that in their right mind, I'm not saying Paul's crazy for doing this, in his right mind, Paul is going to go through with this because he has the Spirit-filled conviction to go. He has this Spirit-filled conviction to see it through to the end that he would be able to unite the body of Christ together through the offering in which he has taken up from the Gentile churches to give to the Jerusalem churches. These individuals are trying to get Paul to, to not go any further. They're saying, Paul, the cost is too high. You know, Paul, surely you want to live. You know, surely you don't want to be in prison. Surely you'll be able to do much more for the Lord if you're not bound in these chains. You know, why would you go? The cost is too high. 
Why would you willingly go to be persecuted? Why would you willingly go to be hated by your people, by your, by your brethren according to the flesh? Why would you do that? Why would you do this here? You see, that's, that's going to happen as we find ourselves moving forward with our Christian convictions. But we must understand this here. We must understand that not only should people not move us from our Christian conviction and try to, 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 to denote to us the cost that is so high to try to sway us from that, but also when we know someone who has a conviction from the Lord Jesus Christ, when we know of that and we know the cost is high, we do them wrong by trying to convince them not to follow through with their convictions. We actually participate in one sense in the devil's work in seeking to prevent, prevent someone from living out their Christian-filled convictions to the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil doesn't need any help in his work. And so if we know a brother or sister is convinced, they are convinced that this is from the Spirit of God, the last thing that we need to do is to try to convince them otherwise. What we need to do is encourage them onward. Martin Luther was headed to the Diet of Worms, and the Diet issued the Edict of Worms, and uh, this was the time when Martin Luther was seeking to reform the church. He had given his thesis. He had shown that justification was by faith alone and not by the works of the law. He had shown the utter inconsistency of the, popes and his, uh, the Pope and his decrees. He had shown that the Eucharist was not a means in, in, in uh, conferring salvation to the saints. He had shown all of these things, and he was called to stand trial. He was called to stand trial where he was going to have to either recant his confession or face the consequences that were going to come. And so what happened was they issued the Edict of Worms, which basically forbade anyone from sheltering Martin Luther or to provide him with aid. The edict stated that Luther should be captured and punished as a heretic. And this was in 1521, which was a critical, critical moment in the Protestant Reformation. Ultimately, uh, Martin Luther was to be summoned there, and he was either to renounce his faith and uh, the faith by faith alone, or he was to reaffirm his views in response to what the Pope was saying and also to what the government was saying. If he did not do this well, you can imagine what was going to happen. And so he has a friend named Spilatin, and Spilatin begged him not to go. He says, don't go. You can't go to this place. You know what they're going to do to you there? Do you know what they're going to do to you for standing on the, on the faith of justification by faith alone and Christ alone and not by works? You know, are, do you know what they're going to do to you? And Martin Luther says to him, Though devils be as many and worms as tiles upon the roofs, roofs, yet thither will I go. You see, people or well-meaning family members or friends, those who love you dearly may out of concern for you try to prevent you from living out your witness for Christ, but this cannot be. This cannot be. It cannot be that we restrict someone from living out their Christian convictions because we are concerned about their safety. We can certainly be concerned about their safety, but if the Lord Jesus Christ is calling them to do this, the best thing that we can do for them is to encourage them onward. Amen. And we know this is the case because Paul here gets a little bit upset with the church here. He gets a little bit upset with them here. You know, they're crying and they're saying, Paul, don't go. You know, probably tugging at his legs, trying to keep him from going further. And Paul, he, you can imagine what this does to someone's psyche who's convinced that the Lord is calling them to do this. But then he's got a million different people saying a million different things to him, saying, don't do this or you know what's going to happen to you. Imagine what it's going to feel like to get beaten by them. You know, all these things that are trying to prevent him from going. And Paul, who is just committed to this, his psyche is weakening. He says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Paul is, is, is upset with them to a certain extent because they are weakening his resolve to go forward. He says, don't do this to me. You know, don't do this to me. I'm convinced that this is the Lord's will for my lives and I need you to support me in this, not to restrict me in this. I know what's going to happen to me. I know it. I've heard it. I've heard it in every city, but I'm going. Support me in this, Paul is saying. Your weeping is breaking my heart. In other words, their weeping is weakening his resolve to go forward for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something that we must notice here as we seek to live out our Christian convictions as well. We must ensure that the individuals who are our loved ones, who care for us, that they know why we're doing what we are doing. We must let them know that we have already counted the cost. We must let them know that we have considered. We have considered it. We have learned from them. We have heard them. We are not ignoring them. But nevertheless, we are going forward. We will not sell out, but rather we are bought into what God Himself is calling for us to do. 
You see, this is what is going to happen as individuals are seeking out what God's will is for their lives. And as God answers what what His will is for their lives, and they are convicted of that, they are going to do it no matter the cost, if it is truly from the Lord. And what we must come to, those of us who are maybe trying to to spur someone away from their convictions, we must come to this point in verse 14, which says, "And And since He said He would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. We must we must support them in what it is that they are seeking to do. And we, if we are trying to live by our convictions, we must let people know why it is what we are seeking to do in order that they don't just, hear, they don't just see us rejecting them as just not hearing them or, or just being arrogant or saying, I'm not going to listen to you anyhow. No, we share why we're doing it. And the individual who hears why we are doing it and says, let the will of the Lord be done. And this is going to happen for us in our lives. It will. If you have children, maybe my children, my children may one day come to me and say, Dad, I want to go and share the gospel over in North Korea. My first thought is, do you know what they do to Christians in North Korea? Are you sure about that? You know, are you certainly sure about that? Why don't don't you be a missionary somewhere else? Why don't you just stay here in America? We've got a big mission field out here in Los Angeles. No, if my son or if my daughter is called to the mission field in North Korea, which is the biggest place in the world where individuals are persecuted, the Lord calls them to that, I will do harm to them by trying to restrict them from going. What I need to do is to support them in that. Or you maybe know someone who is seeking to go into the Christian ministry, full-time pastoral ministry, and they say, I know this is what the Lord has for me. I'm convinced of this. Rather than saying, you know, I don't think you should really do that, you know, don't you know that it's kind of a hard thing to do? Don't you know that it's going to be tough? Don't you know that you shouldn't really do that? Why don't you just do it part-time? Or why don't you just, you know, stick with your job? Don't quit your job yet. Just keep going, and maybe one day it'll work out for you here. No, rather we could say, oh, that's awesome. Let me pray for you in that. Let me support you in that. How can I, how can I move you forward in that? Knowing that it is the Lord's will, we can support them in that. And you say, why must we be supportive of those who are seeking to live out our convictions? Why is it important that we understand the great, the great depth of our convictions to the point where, where we say, no matter what, no matter what happens, I am going to see this through. Why must we be the body of Christ who gathers around those who are living by their Christian convictions? Well, it is because the cost is great. The cost is so very steep for those who are living out their Christian convictions to the glory of the Lord. When someone is called by the Lord into full-time ministry or, or ministry through missions work or even in just the daily life of, of worshiping the Lord in, in front of our peers or, or fellowshipping and forsaking things in which we might want to be doing otherwise or, or also evangelizing when we say, I don't really know what to say to individuals. Why must we be willing to support them in that? Why must we be understanding what we are seeking to do as we are seeking to live out our Christian convictions? Well, it is because, again, the cost is great. The cost is so very high to live out your Christian convictions. No sugarcoating it. No, you know, saying, oh yeah, everything's going to go well for you there. No, the cost is so high when it comes to living out our Christian convictions. And so the support that we gain from our brothers and sisters is wonderful. But also, in our own personal relationship and walk with the Lord, we must We must count the cost before we ensure to others and even in our own mind that this is a conviction which I need to live out in my own life. You see, one of the most dominant reasons people are not living out their spirit-led convictions to the fullest extent is because they are not willing to pay the price. That is, something is more valuable to them than living out their Christian convictions. You know, I'm not yet ready to pay the price necessary to live this out. You know, if I evangelize, I know that my peers might get upset at me for that, and so I sell out at the point of getting persecuted a little bit or, or hated by individuals. Another individual says, well, you know, I want to get into full-time ministry, but uh, just don't really think I want to put in the effort to do that there. Well, they sell out at the effort. They sell out at laziness. There are individuals who are not yet willing to pay the price to live out their conviction that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to them, and therefore they are not only disobeying God's will for their lives, but they also are serving as a bad example to those who are around them. You see, an individual who attempts to live out their Christian ministry must have, must have counted the cost already so that when the cost comes up to be paid, you already have it there ready to pay up. You already can say, I'm ready to pay this price. Whatever happens to me, I'm willing to pay this price. This is why Paul, when Paul himself heard that as he went to Jerusalem that he was going to be imprisoned and beaten, Paul says, I've already counted that cost. Here it is. I'll pay it up right now. I'll go further. I'm ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ at Jerusalem. 
Far be it for me to worry about being imprisoned. I'll lose my life for the Lord if that is the case. You see, Paul was willing to count the cost. He had counted the cost. And when it came time to pay up, he was ready to do that. He had the funds to be able to do it. He didn't need to sell out. He bought in to what the Lord called for him to do. You see, Paul says here in verse 13, I am ready. I am ready. This is such an important statement here as he responds to the brothers and the sisters who are weeping at his resolve to go into Jerusalem. He says, for I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This shows that Paul counted the cost. Are we ready to live out our Christian conviction? Have we counted the cost of what it might look like for us to live out our convictions to the glory of God? You say, what cost might I have to pay for living out my Christian conviction? What does this look like? I'll give you some examples. Matthew 5.11 Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. One cost is often persecution from our peers. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22 And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. We will be hated by others. Another is in Matthew chapter 19, verse 29 and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. This is noting to us that we may have to renounce worldly treasures to live out our Christian convictions. Acts 9.16, the Lord says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Suffering may be a cost that we have to pay to live out our Christian convictions. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 10, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Our reputation may take a hit by living out our Christian convictions. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Again, another cost is all of ourselves, everything, total commitment to what the Lord is calling for us to do. And the highest cost that we can pay, Acts chapter 12, verse 1 to 2, about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. We may be called to give our lives for living out our Christian convictions. You see, a reason why, and this is so true, this is so true, we cannot deny it, a reason why we are unwilling to live out our Christian convictions is because we are not yet ready to pay the cost. My reputation, the respect of my peers, my wants and my desires, my dreams, my treasures, my life. Am I willing to pay this price? Not always. Often not. You know, you get the urge to go and share the gospel with someone and you, you have this opportunity to do that, but you sell out worrying about, you know, being a little foolish in front of an individual. Say, oh, you believe that? You believe that myth? You believe that stuff? You know, we sell out at some point. Such a low, such a low value. I mean, who cares if someone, if someone makes fun of us for sharing the gospel here? Who cares? Who cares? You see, the reason why we should not care about these small things, even though they seem so valuable, our, our, our relationships, our, our time, our worldly treasures, our very lives, even if we are to die for the Lord, even though these scenes, things seem so very valuable to us, they pale in comparison to the riches that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ if we would just submit to Him totally. I mentioned last week we have these three major convictions uh, as a church, and this is in, 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 not in just our church, but generally as the body of Christ, there are three major convictions that we are to worship God, we are to fellowship with one another, that's in the local church body, and also we are to evangelize the lost. How many times do we sell out in these areas because, well, you know, just something else maybe better came along? How many times do we forsake the fellowship of the saints because we are finding ourselves seeking to gain some worldly treasure rather than fellowshipping as a member in the body of Christ? How many times have we sold out from sharing the gospel for the price of our reputation? How many times have we failed to glorify God in our lives because we were worried about being hated by others? You see, the fact is, is we all sell out at some point when the price is too high. But I tell you this, the reason why we do this is not because we lack the ability to live out what God is calling for us to do, but rather it is because we have too small of a doctrine on who God Himself is. If we truly knew God, and I'm not saying just in the sense that we don't know God if we don't live by this, but if we know God, and if we know the riches of God and the riches in which He promises to give to us as we live to the glory of His name, far be it from God 
to reward His faithful saints. If we knew God, we would understand that living for God and the convictions that He gives to us is worth far more than anything that I am selling out for momentarily. Living for God is worth far more than for whatever it is I have sold out for momentarily. Oh, you know, I don't want to be hated by someone, and, and so I sell out for that. I mean, what, I mean, how insignificant is that in terms of the eternal fruit that we could reap from sharing the gospel with someone and they actually respond in faith to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? How insignificant is that price that we are unwilling to pay than the price in which may come about as we see someone believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, why he was so convinced to live out his convictions, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings of this time, the hatred of this time, you know, the uh, renunciation of worldly treasures in these times, that, that which is going to just uh, fade away, it's going to be destroyed, where, where moths are going to destroy it, or rust is going to destroy it, where we're not going to have anything. All of these things are not worth comparing to what the Lord Jesus Christ will reveal to us in that final time. You know, I was thinking about, you know, where can we find encouragement to live out by faith in the promises of God, uh, the convictions in which He has given to us? What's a chapter? What's a book of the Bible that is just so tremendously important in this? Hebrews chapter 11. Turn there with me uh, just for a moment. We're going to read one example. Really, as we think about what it means to live out our Christian convictions, that is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing, believing that God not only has called us to this, but that He also will supply us with the needs that we need to be able to meet what He has called us to, and beyond that, willing to pay any price to see it through to the end. There's one such example that is just so, so wonderful as it relates to this point in Hebrews 11, verse 23. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them." Now, this is where it's so important here in verse 26. He said, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Now, now Egypt was a very wealthy place, and Moses himself had grown up in the ranks to become second to the Pharaoh. Moses could have had anything he wanted. All of the riches, all of the treasures of Egypt. He could have had as many slaves as he wanted. He could have had as many houses as he wanted, as many women as he wanted. Anything that Moses wanted was right there for his taking. But what it says here is that Moses forsook all of that. Why? Because he saw that what was far more valuable was awaiting him as he followed what the Lord Jesus Christ had called for him to do. He considered the reproach of Christ. This is looking toward Christ and His coming. The reproach of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for He was looking to the reward. There was no price. There was no price that Moses was willing to sell out for, and Moses had a lot that he could have sold out for. You know, for us, when we are selling out, it's for something pretty small. Moses could have sold out for the riches of the kingdom of Egypt, but he said, no, I will rather be choose to be marked with the slaves, with the Israelites, with my people, to lead the people of God to the promised land as the Lord has called for me to do. And so then, what we see here is a characteristic of one who lives by their convictions is one who is willing to pay any price to see it through. But there's still one final one, and we'll just look at this just briefly. It's in verse 15. To verse 16. In verse 15 to verse 16, we read, After these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So they get to Jerusalem. He sees his conviction through to the end. And this final point is so important for us to consider here. It is that when we live by our convictions, it in turn encourages others to faithfully follow the Lord. When we live by our convictions, it in turn emboldens the faith of our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ to follow suit. 
When Moses says, you know what, I'm forsaking everything. I don't want any of this. And he gathered the Israelites up together and said, we are going to leave this place and we're going to cross the Red Sea and we're going to go march into the promised land. The people of God were encouraged, not only as they trusted what God was going to do, but as they saw the faith of Moses, they themselves were encouraged to follow through on their own convictions that the Lord Jesus Christ would give to them. You think about this, just a couple of verses earlier, the people are weeping. You know, they're grabbing Paul. Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. You know what's going to happen there. And then in verse 16, Luke says, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us. The very same people who were begging Paul not to go have now come. Why? Well, because they were encouraged by Paul's own conviction and they themselves were going to follow through with what they themselves became convicted of, meaning that they were wanting to grow in unity with the body of Christ who themselves were living in Jerusalem. This is tremendous, tremendous truth that we must take hold of here. And now note this, it's not our own boldness that is going to encourage the individuals, but rather it is the Spirit of God using our boldness to then encourage a brother or sister in the Lord, using us as a means to the end in which He is seeking to bring about in that person's life, whereby our own boldness, that individual will follow suit as the Spirit of God convicts them to do just that. You see, all of Hebrews chapter 11, I just read you one chapter, all of Hebrews chapter 11 is written with the purpose to inspire the beleaguered Christians who were facing endless persecutions. And the author of Hebrews says, you want to endure, do you want to continue in your conviction, do you want to continue following Jesus Christ, look at the faith of these individuals in order that you will be able to be spurred onward, not only as you see that God remains faithful to those who He calls, but also to see that these people found it far more more valuable to follow God than to continue in whatever it is they were doing prior to that. It's the example. The example spurs us on to action. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 7 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You see, when we live by faith in our Christian convictions, others will be motivated to do so. And this only serves to strengthen the body of Christ. Now, we're not motivating them to do exactly what we're doing, but rather they say, well, if this person's doing that and what the Lord's calling to do in, in that, well, then maybe I can do what the Lord's calling me to do. You know, you see how this would work. It would be a, a, just a plethora of individuals just gaining the boldness to follow through with their convictions because they're not going about them alone, but rather they have the encouragement from the body of Christ living out their own example to the glory of God. One such book I want to draw to your attention here. Uh, I have it here with me. It's uh, called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It is a tremendous book to see the convictions of these Christians who were persecuted to the point of death. And there are examples I was reading through this week that I want to just relate, relate to you to see just how the example of others' faith will spur us on to faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an example of these three reverends who found themselves, or actually four, who found themselves uh, uh, preaching during the time of the Reformation, and they were proclaiming the message of the gospel, not what the Catholic Church was doing. And so what happens is uh, these individuals are they're going to die. And so this is their story. It says, These Christian persons were all burnt at Canterbury for the same cause. Frankish and Bland were ministers and preachers of the Word of God, the one being Parson of Adisham and the other of Rovladen. Mr. Bland was cited to answer for his opposition to anti-Christianism and underwent several examinations before Dr. Hapsfield, Archdeacon of Canterbury, and finally on the 25th of June, 1555, again withstanding the power of the Pope, he was condemned and delivered to the secular arm. On the same day were condemned John Frankish, Nicholas Shetterden, Humphrey Middleton, Thacker, and Crocker, of whom Thacker only recanted. Being delivered to the secular power, Mr. Bland, with the three former, were all burnt together at Canterbury, July 12, 1555, at two several stakes, but in one fire, when they, in the sight of God and His angels, and before men, like true soldiers of Jesus Christ, gave a constant testimony to the truth of His gospel. To the end, these individuals were encouraging others to stand by their convictions. One other example for you uh, before we move on even further. In, it's a story about these three individuals, or five individuals, who also found themselves having to suffer the cause for the sake of their own lives, for the sake of proclaiming the gospel. It says, these five martyrs suffered together January 31st, 1556. John Lomas was a young man of Tenterden. He was cited to appear at Canterbury and was examined January 17th. His answers being adverse to the idolatrous doctrine of the papacy, he was condemned on the following day and suffered January 31st. 
Agnes Snoth, widow of Smarden Parish, was several times summoned before the Catholic Pharisees, and rejecting absolution, indulgences, transubstantiation, and auricular confession, she was adjudged worthy to suffer death and endured martyrdom January 31st, with Anne Wright and Joan Soule, who were placed in similar circumstances and perished at the same time with equal resignation. Joan Catmer, the last of this heavenly company of the parish Hithai, was the wife of the martyr George Catmer. It says, The above five persons were burnt at two stakes in one fire, singing hosannas to the glorified Savior until the breath of their life was extinct. Sir John Norton, who was present, wept bitterly at their unmerited sufferings. See, what's considerable for us here in this is that as we are called to live out our Christian convictions, it is going to be hard to do it in our own strength. It will. It's not going to be easy. But when we are encouraged by the faith of others, we will realize that not only do we not have to go at it alone, but also we will see that God is faithful to bring His people through those who He calls to live out by whatever conviction it is that God is calling for them to live out their convictions by. Whatever God is calling them, as they see the example of others, they will see that if you rely upon God, you can see through what God is calling for you to do. Here at FBCH, we ourselves have a list of convictions in which we are living by. Now, we don't call them that. We often call them our vision, our values, and our mission statement. And I was reading through them this week, and I was wondering how often it is that we find ourselves living as a fellowship here by these convictions. They're uh, listed here, and I'll read them for you if you don't know them. Uh, If you're not a member here, you probably have never heard them before, but this is the conviction that we have as we gather together as the body of Christ. Our conviction is that we would love God and love people. We would believe and rest in God's grace and the mercy in the gospel. We would courageously follow Jesus by listening to and obeying His Word. And we would worship Jesus and live in holiness as an expression of worship. And our mission ultimately is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to administer the ordinances of the New Testament, to improve the spiritual life of its members, and to assist in the evangelization of our community and of the world. And you say, how often am I living by these statements? Do I live by these statements? Do I even think about these statements? If we have covenanted together as the body of Christ here at the First Baptist Church of Hollywood, we have said these are the convictions in which I am going to live out when I am in fellowship here and also throughout the world as we represent the body of Christ in the community surrounding us. You see, how often are we living out these statements? How often are we living by our love for God and our love for people? How often are we resting in the God's grace and the mercy of His gospel? How often are we following Jesus? How often are we worshiping Jesus? How often is it that we are assisting in the evangelization of our community and of the world? How often are we doing these things? Therefore, as we ask ourselves this and examine ourselves with this, we then can consider how convicted we are about living these things out. But you see, there's, there's no conviction that we can settle for other than total commitment to live this conviction out. And you say, why? Well, because God has placed us here as a church with these vision, values, and mission in order that we would be able to uh, prove, uh, prove to the world surrounding us that we are a community which is set apart for the glory of God. That we will not balk at the uh, culture. We will not stand uh, uh, afraid when the culture comes knocking on our door and tells us to stop preaching the gospel. That we will not succumb to anything. Rather, we are going to pay any price to see to it that our convictions will be lived out for the glory of our Savior. That no matter what happens, we will walk together in this by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we have these convictions that we hold together. Sure, we have our personal convictions. But as a collective body of Christ, we have this corporate conviction here that we are called to live out as God's little army here in the city of Hollywood. There's one such man who had a conviction about the, uh, the, the nation of Scotland, and he said, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. That was John Knox, and he was one who accomplished a great deal for the purposes that God had given to them, him there. For us, as we settle here as the First Baptist Church of Hollywood, our cry should be, Lord, give us Hollywood or we die. Lord, give us Hollywood or we die. We live to be here as the body of Christ, as a beacon here in the city of Hollywood to not only equip the body of Christ for the works of ministry, but also to evangelize the lost in the community surrounding us. And we must seek to live by these convictions, to live them out. As we look at what Paul did, we must be determined of this. And we are determined of this as a body of Christ here. We're determined that we are going to do this. 
And we must not be swayed from this, just like Paul was not swayed. And we also must be willing to pay any price to see these through, knowing that we can affect our community in the right way. We can motivate our community in the right way to proclaim the message of the gospel, and thereby they can, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, be saved. And if it's God's will, they can come and join us here and partner with us and continue to build up the body of Christ here as believers in the Lord. As we think about this, we must examine our lives today to see how we are living out our Christian convictions, whether it's personally or corporately. How convicted am I to live to the glory of God's name? Again, a believer in the Lord is determined by their convictions. They will not be swayed from them, and they cannot be bought at any price. price, And they do this while seeking to motivate others to faithfully follow the Lord's will for their own lives. And as we think about this, as we examine ourselves by these truths, let us, let us see that we are marked by these in order that we will be able to glorify our great God and also look forward to the day when our Lord rewards us as servants who have been faithful to the task that He has given to us. Mark chapter 10, and I'll close, verse 29 to 31, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let us go to God in prayer believing, believing this that we might, make, might affect our community for His purposes. Heavenly Father, we just thank You for this day that You have given to us to gather together here as the body of Christ. Lord, Lord, I pray that Your Spirit is just awakening us to the convictions that maybe have laid dormant for some time uh, in our lives because maybe we've just gotten too busy or we've just simply not been counting the cost or we've just simply un- been unrealized, uh, unable to realize what it is You've called us to do. Lord, we pray that by Your Spirit You would awaken us to convictions to live out here as the body of Christ, both, per- both personally and corporately here as as those who are members here in the church and also those who consider this place first baptist church of hollywood their home god may we grow in this lord may we seek seek you in this may we just know that as we do these things lord there is going to be such a harvest that you alone will be able to reap through it that that we would affect our community for your purposes and your name will be glorified through it all. God, we long for this and we we seek this, Lord. Lord, may you continue to spur us on with these convictions that to the glory of your name, this city here in Hollywood would proclaim you from uh, wherever it starts and wherever it finishes. Lord, give us Hollywood or we die. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.